This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. This week, the strike, the sex strike is still not over. As always, by the time you hear this, maybe it will be over. But as we discuss this, it is not. Uh, we're going to talk about the ongoing ramifications of that. It's also the release of Killers of the Flower Moon. We will catch up on that new Scorsese film once again. But I guess we have to start with the uh, the most famous and important person in the world, Taylor Swift. Is I mean, I, maybe there's some other people like in the running there. But uh, Richard, you watched the Eras tour up close. Is Taylor Swift the most important and famous person on the planet right now? To some people, sure. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, I think she is the biggest like pop act. I mean, I was listening to another podcast where someone said that she's the biggest pop act since Michael Jackson. Um, Hmm. And, you know, her tour has grossed tons of money. It's been a huge economic boom for every city she's gone to, like hotels and car rentals and public transportation and restaurants and all that stuff. Apparently, she's just has a whole there's a whole economy surrounding her. So she's sort of undeniable in that way. Um, And the movie did very well. It was a little bit under what people were predicting. But I think people had gotten maybe a little too bullish about uh about what a concert movie with a three a nearly three hour concert movie was going to do uh, in a single weekend. It does feel like we kind of played ourselves being yeah. like, getting too wrapped up in the era's concert box office numbers and only hitting 96 million or whatever it was. It feels uh, silly that we got that far. I mean, granted, that number is enormous for a concert film, you know, or for like anything. Yeah, it's number one ever for a concert film. Yeah, it's already outgrossed the Justin Bieber concert movie, which was at before the highest grossing. So yeah, she's she's a phenomenon, and uh, I had to witness it myself, and I went. And you got to witness it yourself. I got to witness it myself. <laughs> yes, I brought a friend <laughs> who was a Taylor skeptic, and he left a Taylor skeptic. Um, but it's well done. I mean, it's very slick. It's you know, the visuals are really appealing, and 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 uh, you know, it feels very high production value. I feel like it's a lot for someone. I like a lot of her music, but I'm not as invested in her as a sort of icon and uh you know i don't think that a casual sort of like oh i like you know blank space or whatever listener of her music is going to necessarily need to see this movie but would they enjoy it um i think there are enjoyable moments you know like for me watching it with sort of or trying to watch it with a kind of professional critical eye um and maybe this is true for all huge arena shows that have so many moving parts that you can't really like ad lib really or improvise Everything in this just feels very 
choreographed kind of within an, within an inch of its life. Like every pose, every kind of bit of banter between songs, it all just felt very, very controlled in a way that like, I don't know, I feel like people go to live performance for something kind of more organic and surprising. Um, and that's not what this provides. It's very packaged. I don't know if that was just because this was the performance where she knew it was being filmed. Uh, maybe the other shows, she's a little looser, but um, I was kind of taken by like how studied and kind of stiff it felt in a way. Interesting. I mean, it does feel like if you, you don't become the you know world's most biggest pop star without being studied and, you know, very in control of your image, which I think we all know that she is. So maybe that's part of the meta narrative. Yeah. I mean, it's probably unfair of me again to like critique that given like how many, how much has to happen in any given moment of the show. Like it's, it's very technically audacious, but it does make me really curious to see how different the Beyonce movie is going to be when that comes out in December. Um, The word on that, it's going to be more of a sort of documentary art film kind of situation, whereas this is just a straight up concert film. But I think we kind of, we go to Beyonce for more capital A art um, these days. uh, And Taylor is, you know, kind of just multi, you know, generational appealing pop star. And, um, you know, seeing nine-year-olds in the audience was fascinating because it's like, Taylor Swift is 20 plus years older than them, and they are so invested in her uh, and her music. And that kind of generational span, uh, that is very rare in a music career. David, you pointed out to me yesterday that the uh, Critics' Choice Documentary Awards kind of bent their own rules to include this in their... They never best- do that. No. <laughs> Unprecedented <laughs> rule changing. Not precedented since the last time they did it. But, you know, it's just in there for best music documentary, not any of the overall categories, which I guess is a quirk of how this all works. But um, does that indicate any effort for people to bend over backwards to include it in further awards conversations? Or is that a one and done? It feels like a one and done We saw her campaigning quite aggressively for her short film last year. I still remember when Richard spotted her at a Banshees of Inisharan (laughs) taste-making event. I believe that was part that was discussed on the podcast. Yes, and I honestly, by the end of that season, felt jealous I hadn't seen her at one such event because I'd heard other similar (laughs) reports. Um, I don't think she's going to be doing that again, and I don't think that the movie fits what the branch would even entertain if we think that the shorts nominating process is finicky and complicated, I think with docs, as we know, very worthy films get omitted all the time. So I just don't, I think this is an attempt by an organization that likes to beef up its star power and its visibility wherever possible to do that again. And there may be some other groups that try to do that, but none of the ones that I'm going to say matter. Ooh. <laughs> none of the ones that matter. Yeah, now that the Gotham Awards have gotten rid of their budget eligibility, I wonder if she's going to, um, you know, she Follow has a SAG waiver. Footsteps. So, yeah, so she can <laughs> she can go accept a Gotham Award. The opportunities are endless. I mean, I am I, I drafted Eras for my um, Vulture movie game roster, which we're all participating in. And I, I still feel good about that. I feel like I'm getting a lot of uh, box office points off of that. But I think I agree that the awards thing may be kind of limited. I don't know, Katie. I think I still think I'm beating you with my one life pick, which is not even coming out this year. So, yeah. Just change it to Freud's last session and maybe nobody will notice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that, that box office. Um, this may not be as big a gamble as I think it might be, but like to ask all of you guys now, will Taylor Swift someday win an Oscar? What would you say? Yeah, she'll write a song for a movie. 
I think she will win one eventually. I think oh, she someday? is. someday? Yeah. Yeah. yeah not, no, has, no, no, no. Yeah, not, <laughs> not like today. this year or next year. Not, definitely not this day. If there's one thing the last year has taught me, like like Richard, someone who likes your music but is definitely a more casual observer, um, she knows how to execute and get what she wants and <laughs> pursue things that are on her bucket list. And I would say that winning an Oscar is definitely on that list from what we've observed of her. Uh, we know she really smartly has hooked up with Searchlight to make up her to make her first movie as opposed to, you know, a bigger studio that will be less helpful in, you know, actually making a good film. So I think she knows how to get there. And she has a lot of different ways of doing it, which will ultimately, I think, come down to songwriting. Searchlight is a crafty way to work with Disney, but not work with Disney. You know exactly. what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, um, That's what Yorgos Lanthimos' main priority was, too, right? Making poor things there. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there was some sniffiness about Taylor entering the Oscar race. Was it last year for her short film, which was yeah. kind of just a music video? And I understand they were like, okay, she's obviously big in her field, but what has she done for us? You know, what she was in Valentine's Day and the giver, like, you know, sure. uh, she was in Amsterdam <laughs> um, briefly before getting run over by a car um, in kind of comical fashion. Um, but now, I don't know, now she has like a film. I mean, she had a documentary for Netflix before, but like she has a film now that is making distributors or uh, exhibitors money. And like um, maybe the second or third time she attempts to get into that, the, the Oscar race people will be more willing to accept her because she has, um, you know, at least proven her box office viability now. That reminds me that that very worthy documentary that Netflix released, Miss Americana, uh, got snubbed by the best documentary. I don't, man, why not even made the long list? Like, it felt like it got treated unfairly, maybe as part of all these biases we're talking about. So She doesn't do well with them. She yeah. the, the Academy has not warmed to Taylor Swift yet, which I think only makes her more determined. Yeah. I do think that I mean, if that film she's directing is successful, that'll really, really help a lot. Because I agree, she has a bit, bit of a bias hurdle to overcome, but she'll get there. She's young. She's got a lot of time. Yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.
Well, back into the news of the strikes or the lack thereof for right now. I guess the strike singular for now, at least. Um, the SAG strike remains unresolved. Um, the domino effects of it are kind of being felt, even though, you know, in a lot of ways, things were still on hold because it, most of the actors still couldn't go back to work. Um, the Academy Museum Gala had been scheduled to happen this past weekend until really the very last minute. And I believe when they announced that it was canceled, I think there was a nod to the events in Gaza as part of the reason. I can certainly imagine plenty of people not feeling like it was a great look to be on a red carpet in tuxedo with the horrors out there in the news. Um, But I think the strike is obviously a big part of that as well. And David and Rebecca, you guys have been out there kind of doing events for some of the films that can do press, like Priscilla. Um, But are you sensing the anxiety out there as, you know, I think last week we really had our hopes up. It might be over. And here we still are. Yeah, it def- the the mood definitely shifted. I did a couple of events this weekend, and I felt like we're kind of back to that feeling before the talks picked up where everyone's just like, I don't know how long this is going to go, which doesn't feel great because it did feel like we had a week of optimism. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. now we're, we're back to just a lot of uh, questions. You know, and this Academy Gala was like the only major event until January, really, and when there are a billion events scheduled. So... I'm curious when they move to and and how that works. You know, obviously their reason was, you know, what's going on in, in Gaza, not um, specifically about the strike. But, you know, I had heard that there were questions about how many actors would go when studios can't, um, you know, pay for their, their glam and styling and all that stuff as they would have usually just bought, you know, tables at that kind of event. So there, there were still a lot of questions about what the attendance was going to be like at that event. It does feel like at this point, there's kind of an awareness that you can't really do stuff like that in a, in a even a remotely official way until the strike is over. There was a lot of speculation as to who would be able to go, and they did get cleared to go. But as Rebecca said, it just didn't really make sense for most people to attend that event, which, you know, last year was among the starriest and biggest kickoff events of that season. And, and that's kind of how it had been had been developed over the last few years since it opened up. That was not going to happen this year. So it, I think it makes sense for them to cancel it. The, the real question now is whether Hollywood will adjust its calendar and, you know, Again. actually, well, well, I mean, the, the cliche that has a lot of truth to it, that Hollywood basically shuts down after November or around Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving, like that may not be as possible this year if things actually are able to progress and a deal is reached closer to that timeline, which is looking more likely at this point. Um, because otherwise, these campaigns are going to be really challenged and they're going to be basically starting in January. <laughs> at the Emmys, as we <laughs> as is traditional. <laughs> yes, we'll have, uh, you know, Greta Lee presenting Best Drama Series as a big campaign. <laughs> hey, she's on the morning show. Yeah, she has a better claim. And actually, Greta Lee can campaign right now. That's a terrible example. We'll have Annette Benning present Best Drama Series. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a strange time. And I, I I just wonder how the timeline will be adjusted. Because at this point, it either will have to be adjusted or these movies are going to have to accept the reality that there's just not going to be much of a campaign infrastructure for their actors until close to the last minute, potentially. And all the while, Anatomy of a Fall benefits and benefits. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, I did two I did two Q&As for that movie back to back last week. 
and both were packed houses and everyone wanted to come up and say hello to Justine Trier and Sandra Hilaire, like the star of it. And and it was just, people were like really effusive about it. Um, and I know that David and Rebecca, you guys have witnessed that from Telluride on. Um, I mean, obviously it started at Cannes, but like, um, yeah, that movie is just making the rounds <laughs> and it's going very well in, for my uh, observation. Yeah, I, I did a Priscilla one on Friday. Had a was the Ampass screening. It was you know hundreds of Academy members, very enthusiastic, who got to see Kaylee Spaney and Jacob Elordi uh, be charming, and that's who is getting out there right now. And it makes a big difference because the Academy. This is when Academy members and voters start going to see these movies and start talking about these movies. And yeah, this is exact moment, and this is something we'd been talking about. You know when we get to this point, when that point of difference starts to be felt, and I do think it is being felt right now. Uh, and I'm sure at these regional festivals, it's being felt. It's just the reality. And we feel like we're saying it every week. But yeah, every day that Anatomy of a Fall and Past Lives and et cetera, et cetera, can get an extra leg up is very beneficial to them. And like, it's just wild to think of all the movies that can't, like Maestro can't do any of this stuff right now, you know? Like, yeah. Well, it can't do anything. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's like an extreme example. Yeah. Yeah. And like in, Annette Benning and, you know, that movie, I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, yeah, we're getting to the point now mid October where it's like, oh, this is now very noticeable, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I will say that I saw Ferrari at the New York Film Festival, the press screening on um, last week, and um, Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz were there because that one also has a deal. I mean, I think. Adam Driver is not necessarily the person you imagine like eagerly going at the campaign trail, but he's there. Like that gives him a leg up over, you know, even people who might more um, willingly be part of the whole circus. Uh, I'm, I'm in, intrigued to see how that one especially pans out because it's, you know, I think Past Lives has more of an audience friendly bent than Ferrari. I haven't seen Priscilla yet, but maybe that gives Ferrari an edge it wouldn't have otherwise. Ferrari is in an, it's, it's kind of the odd person out of those movies with interim agreements because... You know, if you look at a Priscilla or a Past Lives or Anatomy of a Fall, you have, I mean, Sandra Hiller's not a rising star, but to American audiences, she kind of is. You know, all these movies, it's casts that are being discovered by these voters. With Ferrari, it's a big budget Michael Mann movie that just happens to have been financed independently and is now being distributed by Neon. So it's kind of slipping through the cracks, you know, very fairly in a really interesting way. Uh, but that also means you have people like Adam Driver who are not, say, as thrilled to get out there as a Greta Lee or a Sandra Huller. So it just depends. Um, but that, yeah, I, I, I'm really curious about how that movie is benefiting or not from just having that level of exposure. I think the um, the narratives about the actors that are going to emerge and in some ways created by us is really interesting. You know, you've got all these strategists who are usually out there being like, give this interview and position yourself in this way. And that's how you win the Oscar. But, you know, we've been talking about amongst ourselves. Like, what do we want to say about Leonardo DiCaprio and his performance in Killers of the Flower Moon that he can't talk about himself? There, there's room for interpretation in a way that I think is really interesting. And I don't know if that means that the performances themselves will have more weight because so much of what we're bringing to this is our understanding of these actors. But I don't want to say it gives us more power, but it gives more room for for discussion about who these actors are, what they mean to us, and where they fit into the season. I kind of like that. It's almost like an experiment of like, what if there wasn't campaigning? Like, what yeah. if it wasn't allowed? And for some, uh, most of these actors, it isn't. But it's obviously not an even playing field because, as we've mentioned, several of them are out there. But, it, yeah, it, it definitely 
is changing the conversation in a way that's really fascinating. Not that I want it to continue. I would like to the actors to return, but um, it's definitely an interesting experiment. It's the ghost of to Leslie. <laughs> wow, to Leslie keeps finding ways to come up. No references to to Leslie. <laughs> it's true. I think I was the one who made that rule, so I, I just broke my rule. But I do think it is interesting that the year after we really had that conversation about the Oscar mm-hmm. race, who gets a fair shake and who doesn't, um, that the movies that are really benefiting from this are smaller movies, mostly. Yeah. Um, not the smallest movies, and that's a whole separate conversation. We had people like Trace Lissette on the show who were mm-hmm. repping, you know, movies that are still fighting for a place even with all this in the conversation. Um, but by and large, it, it has, I think, even things out a little bit, especially for a movie like Past Lives, which came out, you know, in June that was really successful with critics and audiences, but this is a year with a lot of big contenders, you know, big filmmakers, big box office hits. And it's so helpful that that is one of the few movies that can be out there in full force. The two Leslie thing brought this to mind. In the the SAG rules, can another person, an actor, promote someone else's movie at this point? Or are they just not promoting anything you can't promote a struck project. Yeah. Okay, so no, no matter if you were in it or not. Right. Yeah. Okay, so like some big celebrity couldn't have a party at their house or screening at their house of their dear friend, you know, Bradley's movie, right? That wouldn't that wouldn't work. Okay. <laughs> Godspeed to them if they do that. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what would come out on the other side of that. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of something for Frances Fisher to do between now and Thanksgiving, you know. Has she seen Maestro? We need to check yeah. on this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's just sitting at home, looking at the clock, waiting. <laughs> We talked about Annette Bening a little bit. That is, of course, a uh, Oscar narrative we're all following very closely. And Nyad is in theaters this week uh, alongside Killers of the Flower Moon, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, and Rebecca, you've been talking to the directors of that film who are not debut directors exactly, but making a really interesting leap toward narrative filmmaking with Nyad. And they're kind of in an interesting class that you've been highlighting this week. Um, kind of what, what makes them special? Well, they're past Oscar winners, but they're at the same time sort of first timers this season because they, you know, they have a ton of experience in documentary. They won for Free Solo, which was an incredible doc. Um, but this is their night is their first um, narrative feature. And then I kind of I think it was at Telluride. I sort of noticed that that was a thing that was happening because um, I also saw Cassandro at Telluride, which I thought was really well done. And that's directed by Roger Ross Williams, um, who also is known for documentary. He he did uh, Life Animated, um, which was nominated for an Oscar, and he won for a short doc um, as well. And then I was thinking about Past Lives, which I saw quite a while ago. But, you know, Celine Song, who directed it, is a playwright who's making her feature film debut. And I was kind of like, these are incredible narrative film debuts. And I I feel like even if you have experience in film, it's it's not the easiest transition. So I thought maybe talking to them about what that was like um, would be interesting. And I kind of had a theory that working with actors might have been each of their biggest hurdles because they hadn't done that before. And I was pretty much right. <laughs> like Jimmy and uh, Chai had a really interesting story about their first day was, a, a, you know, a boat scene on a big tank and they had to like use a megaphone to direct or give their notes to Jody Foster, like across the tank because they were on a separate boat. And just like the challenge of 
telling Jodie Foster, this like incredible veteran actor, uh, notes where 400 other people are listening to you. It's like a very different experience, I think, than, you know, in documentary, you're letting the participants tell their story the way they want to, basically. So, yeah, it was really an interesting group because even though they come from different backgrounds, they sort of had similar challenges in making their first films uh, in the narrative feature film category. How do you feel like that comes across in the performances in Nyad? I still haven't seen it yet. And, you know, Jodie Foster's been getting this incredible praise. And I, I wonder if that's partly because she's such a veteran actor that she can kind of walk into any scenario and deal with, with anything. Or if there's something about, you know, being directed by people new to it that brings out things in her and net bending. Yeah. I mean, Jimmy Chin said he asked a bunch of his friends who were actors, like, what what is the most annoying thing you can do as a director? And and they were all like over direct, like just let these professionals do their job, you know. And I think they probably really took that to heart. And as I said, they're used to letting, you know, whoever they're filming speak and have that space and freedom. So I, I have a feeling that was probably a strength for them. And when you have two actors like that, it's probably not that hard. So um, they all kind of had a similar approach, I think, where they allowed the actors to do what they do best. Yeah. Where do we feel like Nyad is as it prepares to open in theaters? It's been kind of quiet, partly because of the strike, I think. But is it is the Annette Benning Jodie Foster conversation kind of primed to rear back up based on the strength of this movie? I think that it is a movie that needs campaigning mm. more than it's getting. Which is true of many. Which is true of many, but you know, Annette Benning is a narrative-driven campaign, like undeniably. Just the symmetry of the character's story and her story of the nature of that character and her performance. I think it is important for her to be out there and be able to speak about it. And unfortunately, she's not. Um, and us speaking about it doesn't do the same thing. We can say she's been nominated however many times and not won as much as we want, but it's still not going to do the same thing. We do have the entire Academy on our subscriber list, which is amazing. <laughs> so we are, you know, doing what we can. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's it's just not it's not the same though. And yeah, there are people who will definitely be complimenting and praising that movie and there have been a lot of screenings uh for voters and industry members around LA for Nyad. Um again, it's from what I understand it's playing very well, but it's just not quite the same thing. So I, I think that as long as people are seeing it and enjoying it, that's what's needed right now. But in terms of kicking into high gear and really getting that level of campaign, yeah, that's going to be pretty important for that movie. I think more important than for other Best Actress contenders, uh, particularly like an Emma Stone, where that movie's just going to ride a ton of critical love and she can mm. you know, benefit from that for a while, I think. Yeah, Nyad needs Annette Benning out there at post-screening Q&As talking about how hard it was. It's mm -hmm. like Leonardo DiCaprio yes. spoke four months about eating a horse heart or whatever the hell he did <laughs> exactly. in The Revenant. Exactly. And like that was, people were like, wow, he like almost killed himself on this movie. And here's a Oscar, like you deserve it. Um, he was also sort of viewed as overdue, you know? And I think Benning really getting into the nitty gritty of the difficulty of the shoot. The directors can say it and people will believe it, but like hearing it from her herself is where that campaign, I think, will take its strength whenever she can do it. Mm -hmm. I've, I feel actually similarly about uh, Cassandra. Like, you need Gael out there talking about that performance because it is the highlight of that movie. And I think there's quite a few movies where it's like, you need those actors to be talking about, you know, spending months studying the real-life subjects and things like that. So 
the, the, those movies have that in common as well. I feel like Cassandra is a great example of the smaller movies we were talking about earlier that kind of don't get an advantage for this. Like it's released by Amazon, so it's not small enough to have an interim agreement, but it's something that you would just need people to really put their eyes on. And a Gargasur Banal interview would be so powerful toward doing that. Um, it, it makes me want the strike to end to give give more of a legs up leg up to things like that in particular. I noticed uh, Fair Play dropped out of the Netflix top 10 pretty quickly, which <sighs> bummed me out. But yeah. I, I think that's another example of, you know, those are two very appealing actors who couldn't sell that movie at all. And that makes a difference. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, like Netflix buying that at um, Sundance, you know, with Phoebe Denever, who's, uh, you know, star of one of their biggest shows. Like, it makes perfect sense until it doesn't make any sense. You, you really start to feel like the the reasoning behind challengers moving behind dune moving you know yeah. it's like it's uh, without the promotion you, you really are like oh yeah the movies can kind of disappear <laughs> you know without it, tons of interviews floating around either on tv or youtube or in prints you know it's just it's it's significant I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Yeah, the marketing for Killers of the Flower Moon, you know, to get into what the movie we wanted to get to next has been kind of remarkable with that in mind. Like Scorsese's also been out there doing a million interviews, doing TikToks with his daughter, et cetera. Um, but there's just like new posters and new trailers and I'm getting banner ads for it all over the place. It's kind of like the biggest marketing blitz I've seen since Barbie and Oppenheimer, probably. Um, and that's a, a show of faith in the movie. That's Apple having a scrolling dollars to spend on it. But it's like kind of the first time you've seen a movie kind of actively make up for not having the actors put out there by just being really visible. It does feel like Scorsese is might maybe doing a little bit more than he probably would have if his mm-hmm. actors could have been fronted. And everything he does and says gets picked up. So uh, <laughs> it feels like I, I, I scan Twitter and it's just like a different Scorsese interview. Um, so I think he's being, I feel like, put to work a little bit more than maybe he would have mm-hmm. if, if the actors were out there. You know what I've noticed about him, though, and I also thought about this listening to your interview with the costume designers, Rebecca, everyone's talking about Lily Gladstone every possible opportunity they can when they do press mm. about this movie. Have you noticed this, too? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's another one of those, like, God, I wish she could be out there because people need to know her and hear her story situations. You know, luckily, she did some press out of Cannes before this started, but because her performance has to be a little quieter, I think there's a lot of admiration for what she accomplished, you know, in the screen time she had. It just feels to me like there's a coordinated effort from the people who are able to do it being like, let's put our energy behind our best hopes. Like, not that everyone doesn't want to talk up the quality of their work, but uh, there's there's effort happening there. And I think it's probably going to pay off. I kind of remember, like, remember last season where everything everywhere was getting everything, but every single person was like, Michelle Yeoh, don't forget about Michelle Yeoh. It, it kind of feels like an early <laughs> yeah. version of that. Absolutely. Like, Hello, she's right here. Like, so um, it does feel a little bit like that, yeah. 
Except in that case, Michelle Yeoh was everywhere and charming everybody and, yeah, and right. you know, selling herself as, as someone who should be in that conversation. And Lily Gadsden. And it was still a nail biter. <laughs> it was still a nail biter. Well, I think she, you know, that was a really fun, juicy race. I mean, you don't get that every year. But Lily Gladstone does, is, yeah, she needs to be out there in the same way. So to talk about killers more generally, I mean, we talked about it when you guys saw it at Cannes. We talked about it with our book club. So we've gotten into the movie in a lot of detail. And I haven't seen it in a while, so I don't want to, like, get into nitty-gritty and get all the details wrong. But I did think it'd be interesting to talk about Best Director in the context of this movie. Again, Scorsese is the most visible person from the film doing any campaigning. So I wonder if there is a, a sense of career capping for him, although we all remember The Irishman doing basically the same thing and coming away with zero Oscars for its efforts. Um, I think we would all agree that everyone's kind of in a race against Christopher Nolan at this point, just, you know, Mm -hmm. regardless of what buzz everything else gets. But is Scorsese kind of prime in the mix to try to get also get in there or who who's else is elbowing him out? Well, I mean, I think Justine Trier is a contender for Anatomy of a Fall. The the director's branch of late has liked to include at least one director of a, you know, international feature. And uh, I feel like that's maybe the strongest contender of that group. Oh, I think it has to be, right? Yeah, right. Um, and it's also, you know, is being heavily promoted and whatever. But yeah, the Nolan thing is it makes it hard to kind of think about <laughs> who else is in the mix. I think my big question mark is whether Gerwig gets in. Like, I think yeah. Barbie is a, definitely a screenplay contender and, and probably Gosling as well um, in supporting actor. We did get an email saying that we were kind of ignoring Ryan Gosling when talking about supporting actor last week. So apologies. He, yes, of course, is heavily in the mix for that. But Gerwig is director. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of up in the air for me right now. And so you think Trier would be more likely as the only woman in this category, is what you're saying, Richard? <laughs> we can only have one, apparently, again, so we're back to that, but interesting. Right, right. Yeah, sorry, that's just the rules, Rebecca. I don't know what to tell yeah, you. Um, Richard made those rules, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I could even see a world where Celine Song mm-hmm. has a lot of momentum as a first-time director, who, and they really love that movie, and it's such a, you know, her personal vision. She also speaks about that movie and her particular, like, you know, blocking and and the way she uh, did rehearsal for certain scenes in such a specific way. I do think directors will will be find past lives mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. an interesting player in the race. And I think I think it's more director e than Anatomy of a Fall. Um, in and the director's branch is obviously different. They know the craft more than I do, but I think you can see the visual influence of a director in past lives a lot more than you can of Ana- in Anatomy of a Fall. So I wonder about how that contrast might work. What I would say about Gerwig is that branch is just really hard on movies that feel commercial. Yeah. You know, I I remember when we were talking about Denis Villeneuve as the person who could beat Jane Campion for Dune, and then they didn't even nominate him. Or I think of Ridley Scott for The Martian. You know, it can be a director that they love. uh, And they if they if that movie just doesn't pass a certain, you know, highbrow smell test, then they can pass it over. It happens a lot. And I think Barbie will get a ton of nominations, will be a strong Best Picture player. Um, but I don't think that guarantees her getting in. I really, I wonder about it because this is a really stacked field with people like Nolan, Scorsese. I think Yorgos mm-hmm. Lanthimos will yeah. absolutely be nominated yeah. for Poor Things. Those are probably my three locks right now. 
And yeah, you have people like Justine Trier, you have people like Jonathan Glazer. You know, what if he's like a lone nominee for Zone of Interest just for the achievement of of realizing that movie? There's a lot of ways this could go. I'm curious about Glazer. I I feel less sure that he'll get in. Me too. I mean, you're saying he's on the fence too, but I, you know, I I I really hope for Alexander Payne. I feel like he should yeah. definitely. Be, it's yeah. it's yeah. and then you know we still have the poor Bradley Cooper who can't be out there. Question. So um, <laughs> it's like the only director who can't promote his movie. That is tough. <laughs> so I, I think it's very crowded. Um, but I agree with your locks, uh, David. I think Nolan Scorsese and Lanthimos are are pretty secure. Alexander Payne got nominated for Nebraska, which I had forgotten. Until. They love him. Yeah. yeah, they really love him. But is who is they compared mm. to 2013, yeah. I guess, is the question. Exactly. I would love to bring up Todd Haynes, yeah. as I do often on this podcast. He's never been nominated in this category. And it is, in my opinion, him at the peak of his powers. And I know Netflix really, really wants him to get his first directing nomination for this movie. And I'm I'm glad they're putting their might behind it. Because he deserves to be in that conversation, at least more than he is right now. And I found it kind of frustrating that he just always, every single cycle he is in it with a really good movie, seems to be on the outside looking in. And it is it is getting very tiring. Uh, yeah, I just think, I think the Academy is going to say, oh, it's too silly, you know. And if we're going to do a silly movie, let's nominate Barbie, you know, or let, nominate Gerwig. <laughs> Made a summer and Barbie so similar in so many ways. <laughs> Christine Vachon did call it pedophile Barbie in the pages of Vanity Fair. <laughs> I mean, because May December is there is serious stuff in there, and there is like pathos, and and it's really complicated. It's not just some tawdry little you know dark comedy. It's more than that. But given how dismissive the Academy has been of Todd Haynes as a director over the years, you know, not nominating him for Carol or his yeah. wild, you know, I don't know. I just feel like that is a pretty pretty high hurdle to jump over unfortunately it's just it's so frustrating because i always ask myself like could any other director have made this movie the way it mm-hmm. is and i think he's the only one who could have done made oh december the way yeah. it is and it's so well done it it's any you, you could say the same thing about yorgos and several of these other directors and their films but i don't it's, who, who are, are getting, getting nominated yeah it just feels like <laughs> this is the one guys just get, put todd haynes in there yeah. it's just what can we do well, if you look at Nolan, Scorsese, and Lanthimos as kind of the, the locks, uh, and then even if you put Greta Gerwig in there, they're all people who've been nominated before. Scorsese's the only one who's won. So, like, how much room do you make for a new person in there? Or does it go to Alexander Payne, who's also been nominated before? There's, there's like, freshness, and then there's kind of reversion to, you know, excellent movies, but names that we've already seen before, and it's hard to know which way it'll go. And I, I think, you know, once you reach that level of four or five and who fills it out— you know, last year it was Ruben Osland, who I don't think any of us had predicted. And it's just almost always, to what Richard was saying about Justin Trier at this point, an mm-hmm. international filmmaker, that maybe we're underestimating a little bit. And so we could certainly talk about people like Cor Jefferson for mm-hmm. If American Fiction Surges, or even someone like Ava DuVernay if, if Origin finds that passionate support. But it's just so much more likely, given the way this branch works, that you're going to see a Justin Trier or, you know, Zone of Interest is um, international in language. And so UK is submitting it. Uh, Jonathan Glazer, I think, fits into that profile. Um, or maybe a movie we haven't even thought about yet that surges like a taste of things. Like, who who, mm-hmm. who knows? But that feels a lot more likely to me than one of those likely Best Picture nominees that's 
not necessarily as strong as Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon or even the Holdovers. I know Ridley Scott's just sitting there behind the curtain with Napoleon. So <laughs> also Ridley Scott. <laughs> yeah. And Color Purple. Those are two big unknowns. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like Zone of Interest fits the triangle of sadness, like Cold War. Did he get that money for Ida too? Cold War like, is the one. Yeah, yeah, like it is. That's what I thought of. Visually striking and kind of somber, and it's kind of visionary in a way. Like, I, I feel like I'm insulting Anatomy of a Fall, which I really love, but it kind of feels like it fits more in that tradition. If you're picking just one, you know, international feature, I feel like it fits that pattern better. It is interesting thinking about, you know, the the overdue directors are talking about um, who could all finally get in. And can you imagine a more different group than Ava DuVernay, Todd Haynes and Bradley Cooper? Like, what else do those three people have in common <laughs> other than people thought they should have been nominated for Oscars before? Maybe, yep. maybe all three. That is, th- that is what they have. That is quite literally what they have in common. <laughs> to go back to Killers of the Flower Moon before we wrap, it's opening really wide this weekend. It's very interesting to think about how it's going to do. It's been a while since we've had like big box office to talk about. The last Scorsese film was The Irishman, which was on Netflix. So we really have no idea how many people watched it. Um, I'm imagining that for Apple, The Fablemans is maybe looming a little large as this big Spielberg movie that we had high hopes for and people just absolutely did not go to see. Do we care about box office for this? Do we think it matters Oscar wise? Do we think maybe it could do really well? I think people are definitely curious about it. Like I have had people in recent months. That's the movie they want to know about. Like, is the Scorsese movie good? Um, I think the runtime is going to be really daunting. And I think a lot of people are just going to choose to watch it at home, maybe in like installments, basically. Um, And we don't know when it's coming out on Apple yet, I don't think. Like, they're being cagey about that. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe, maybe because there's no announced date for that, people will say, well, I I should see it in the theater. But I don't know. It's a tough sell. It's the length. It's really serious, grim subject matter. Um, It's not a fun quote-unquote fun Scorsese movie like Goodfellas or whatever. It, do- it doesn't have that sort of comic patter to it. Um, and that's evident in the marketing and everything. So I, I don't know. Um, it's it's For me, I think it could go either way. But I my unfortunately, my, my hunch is that it will be kind of a quiet theatrical release. I would argue the marketing has leaned on the Wolf of Wall Street thing a lot, like where you've got like Leonardo DiCaprio and a bunch of good for nothing guys scheming. Um, like, I don't think it's trying to make it look fun, but it does seem like it's trying to be like, hey, look, it's Scorsese. He knows crime. Like, give it a shot, which is not a bad tactic, I don't think. It's interesting because that question of I've been getting to is, oh, is the Scorsese good is usually followed by because I did not like the Irishman, which I do think is is gonna <laughs> is gonna hurt a little bit with people as you're saying, Richard, going to the theater, paying the money, sitting for the three plus hours um to see it because that film the Irishman did not go over well. And this is a much, much better movie. I think we all feel that way. Um but it does seems to have left a little bit of a bad taste in some people's mouths. Wait, I like the Irishman. Do we all turn on oh, the I'm sorry. I <laughs> 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 I like the Irishman too. I love Killers of the Flower Moon. Though, yeah. So yeah. I I I think yeah, it's it's a more propulsive movie. Yes. Whereas the Irishman is very elegiac and mournful. And this movie is too, but it, it has a real uh it has a qualities, bones of a thriller that the marketing is really leaning into. Maybe too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You wonder if it's gonna get like a D cinema score where they're like, wait a second, I didn't sign I didn't sign up for this to not be any fun. Yeah, I mean if you compare it to Oppenheimer, I, I do 
I feel like people knew what they were getting when they walked into that movie. And I, I, I do wonder if there's going to be a disconnect between the way the movie's being sold and the way it plays. The other problem is it was just made for so much money that when it comes to reporting about its box office, yeah. it's, it's not going to make its money back. It's just basically impossible. And so that's going to be a frame around which the movie is discussed. Whereas Oppenheimer, I think it was made for half of what Killers was made for, which made that conversation immediately easier. And then it was also an enormous hit. So that's such an annoying way to talk about these movies funded by streamers. I agree. Like Apple doesn't care if this movie makes money. They don't. A hundred percent. They wouldn't have made it for two hundred million dollars or whatever it was because they they know the math. Um, it just feels like such a like I like box office. I care about it, but when it comes to projects like this, it just feels so beside the point. I wonder if it will for Napoleon too. Yeah, I think that one's going to have a. It's going to be a yeah a different kind of conversation because I don't think that you're going to have that much goodwill necessarily that Scorsese is receiving right now. Not to say people don't love Ridley Scott, but it's a different kind of thing. Who writes the first Napoleon Falls Short at box office headline? <laughs> maybe, maybe it should be you. Asked. Yeah, maybe it's you. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, do you think that we have hit the Scorsese controversy of the year with all with the round of 10 of Marvel or is there something else? Because every time he puts a movie up, people get really mad about something and sometimes it's hard to see what it is. So I'm curious. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe the other day when I saw that the Marvel thing had flared back up. I know he keeps <laughs> saying stuff about it, but that's because people keep asking him about and it. And also, he knows it gets attention for his movies. Like, it's yeah. working. What a, like, yeah. no one, he cannot hear the Marvel fanboys yelling at him, and it gets people to know he has a movie coming out. It's a win win. Who knew he was such a little troll? <laughs> <laughs> I also feel like he, not that he won that debate, but if you look at the state of Marvel right now and how killers his position like he did okay in that whole back and forth yeah he got apple to you know spend as much as an ant-man maybe on killers of the flower moon so take that mm-hmm. that does it for this week's show we'll be back next week find us on twitter and instagram at bf awards insider all over vanityfair.com i am on twitter at katie rich and richard rylaws and david david canfield 97 and rebecca rebecca m ford Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best Halloween costume this year goes to David Canfield. The Ghost of To Leslie. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 